Well, I want to have all of us turn together to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. We're almost done with Ezra Nehemiah. Just a few more looks at Ezra Nehemiah before we begin our series on the coming millennial reign of Christ on Sunday evenings, and that will become our habit here for quite some time. But I do take a, a little executive privilege on occasion. And as I'm prone to do once in a while, I don't want to miss an opportunity that I believe the Lord placed before me, which I believe and am certain will bless and benefit the whole church body. We announced recently the startup of a needed ministry in our church, and I, and I was thrilled to see this happen under the umbrella of the women's ministry, and that is the Women of Hope ministry, a fellowship group for women who have lost their husbands to death, and we have a number of those in our body. And the leadership team of that new ministry graciously asked me to come to their first meeting, which happened this week, and give a little devotional just to share for a few moments, and I did that on Thursday morning. In the days prior, I just kind of rattled around in my head, kind of brainstorming what the Bible says about widows. And so I was I was only going to talk for 10 minutes or so, so I reduced all those thoughts rattling in my brain to a one sticky note that I stuck in my Bible and we enjoyed a nice time together. I went to that meeting, just the beginning portion, because there's nothing that ruins the fellowship of women like a man. So went to that beginning part of the meeting and I honestly was very moved. And I was reminded of the preciousness of this contingent to the body of Christ. And I shared my little devotional and I was asked if I might write it down. So it was still relatively early in the day and I thought I would come back to my study here at the church and I set a timer on my phone for 30 minutes. That I was going to just write it down in 30 minutes. It wasn't going to be a big deal. Well, I ignored the timer and the topic took root in my heart. I abandoned everything else I was doing that day and I abandoned what I was going to preach tonight as a result of that. And with your indulgence, I'd like to share with you kind of the expanded version of the few thoughts I shared with those ladies this past week. And up front, I have to confess to you, and I, I mentioned this to them, I'm not a fan of the term widow. I don't like that word. Beyond the obvious understanding of a woman who has lost her husband to death throughout history, the word also has carried connotations of lesser or lower or, or somehow not what you used to be. I think this is partly due to the natural situation in almost every era of history in which a widow is often put into terrible financial distress, social distress because of the loss of her husband. But even in modern times, negative stereotypes impact the view that some have of widows, even to the point of treating widows differently. Many factors have been suggested for this phenomenon. Some say it's due to the discomfort our culture tends to have with death. We don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to deal with someone who has dealt with death up close and personal. Others say it's not knowing how to relate to someone who has always been married until recently. That, that, that we don't have a, 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 a grid for that. And others say it's just simply worrying about saying the wrong thing. And so we may keep our distance. Whatever the reason is. There is a known phenomenon that widows are at times treated differently. In any case, it's not uncommon for a widow to experience feelings of inadequacy or somehow being a lesser important person now that her husband is gone and she's no longer thought of as part of a marriage. 
And so for me personally, the reason I'm not really fond of the term widow is that in my limited human mind, that term can feel like the new definition of that woman. We so easily use the phrase, she is a widow, defining her in those terms. And this can seem like the full expression of who that woman is fundamentally. And so my goal this evening, and I know it's a very, very uh, precise topic here, but my goal this evening is to remind both widows in our midst and all of us in the body of Christ of the actual truth of Scripture that God elevates widows to a high position of honor. And so even though the term widow is a necessary one, it's used over 90 times in the Bible, the term does not define the woman. The term describes a life circumstance, a particular situation in which she finds herself in the sovereign plan of God. And just in case anyone wants to send me an email and saying, are we suddenly going to a social gospel here? I am being very specific tonight, but I'd like to address this issue pertaining specifically to widows in the church of Jesus Christ. Those who have surrendered their lives and salvation to Christ. Non-Christian widows have many of the same heartaches, many of the same pains, but their problems are infinitely worse. Their problems are of an eternal nature. Grief and pain because of the loss of a husband and the accompanying ramifications, these are the very least of the concerns of a non-believing widow from an eternal vantage point. Her biggest and only real need is to repent of her sin and rebellion against God and receive Christ's free offer of salvation. Even widows, even widows who refuse to worship God by receiving Christ will be judged at the end of their lives. Their grief and their pain does not purchase for them favor with God. The grief and pain endured by Jesus Christ at the cross does, however, purchase salvation and purchase God's favor for them by paying the penalty of sin on behalf of sinners who are unable to do so for themselves. So what does the Bible indicate about widows and how does God view and treat them in Scripture? I I think this is something that's good for us as a church and I want to suggest that, first of all, it will help us to be more mindful of loving one another in general. Second, it will help us to be more mindful, certainly, of loving the widows in our midst, and there's a number of them. But third, I think any time we can talk about how God treats His people, I think that's good for us. I think it's good good health food, so to speak, for our souls. And so tonight, I'd like to highlight five honors that the Lord bestows upon believing Christian widows. And the major reason for sharing this with you this evening is to continue to engender our love and care and concern for one another in the body of Christ. The first honor, and this is really more introductory, is just to say that she is worthy of honor. The first honor is that she is worthy of honor. Unlike the world that says, well, the widow is left behind, the widow is lesser now, it's just the opposite. Generally speaking, she is worthy and suitable to be honored. We find ourselves here in 1 Timothy 5, Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Widows indeed, meaning that they're truly alone in the world with no children, no other relatives to serve or to care for her. This doesn't mean that widows with adult children or relatives to help her or if she has her own means of support, that they're not somehow purely widows indeed. Paul's speaking only of the family situation. That's his intention here. Verse 5 describes the Christian widow as one who has fixed her hope on God. In fact, that inspired the name of our ministry, widows, or women of hope, rather. 
fixed her hope on God. And I thought about this as I had the privilege of, of gathering with these, these women. I, I'm not easily intimidated. Like standing in front of you doesn't scare me, doesn't intimidate me. Standing in front of a group of people of any size doesn't do that. But sitting with those women was an awe-inspiring experience. For me, being in the presence of a group of widows is the equivalent of how I think I would feel in a room full of Olympic gold medal winners or a room full of retired police officers, heroes. Every widow has endured a level of pain and grief that's truly only understandable by others who have experienced the same thing. Genesis 2.24 famously gives God's decree of the institution of marriage as a gift to mankind. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Because of this, because of God's creation of marriage, because of God's creation of the one flesh essence of marriage, when a man and a woman have spent every day, every week, every month, every year together for decades when they've consulted with each other on every part of life, when it's become second nature to ask opinions of the other, when they've shared thousands of expressions of emotional and physical intimacy together, when they've raised children and had grandchildren, when they've built a life together that began with the excitement of youth, never imagining the level of anguish that would come late in life at the loss of the other one. This is incomprehensible loss. It's incomprehensible. And yet, in the mercies and in the grace that God gives and by the strength given by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God, Christian women walk through this anguish at the loss of their love, the loss of their protector, the loss of their provider, and they come through this time with spiritual power and peace. Every generation of Christians have seen, has seen widows who are victorious in this. It's only by the grace of God that this temporary separation by death when a husband has gone home to heaven, it's only by God's grace that that agony gives way to the joy and the contentment that belongs only to the child of the living God. This is a woman who has clung on to theological truths, truths such as the short-term nature of this separation, the, the certain hope of heaven, the joy of salvation in Christ, the endless comfort found in the Word of God, all of these are gracious gifts of God that take her from the hourly and daily anguish very slowly to, to peace and contentment. And yes, laughter may take a while to return, but it does eventually. And yes, smiles may take a while to come back, but they do come back. Only for the Christian widow do the glorious truths of following Christ supersede even the most terrible times of grief. The truth Paul declared victoriously in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That truth takes root once again, not to erase the emotions associated with deep grief, but to rise above them and soar on the heights over them. I've had the privilege of preaching and and writing quite a bit on the subject of pains and trials in life. It's a favorite subject of mine. I'm not sure why, it just always has been. I'm burdened for God's people, including myself, to have a a theological foundation upon which to rest in the midst of unceasing tears and pain in times which feel hopeless. And I've been very, very blessed over the past years to receive a lot of kindness. I've received words of encouragement, emails, and so forth about these messages and about some books. And 
I greatly appreciate that, and it's very kind. Some have even gone so far as to say that the Lord used something I did to get them through a crisis, and I'm, I'm really glad for that. But I have to be honest about this. That little tiny bit of help, that little tiny bit of contribution shrinks into nothingness. When I think about the spiritual battle scars of grief carried by a Christian widow, and when I'm in the presence of a Christian widow or a group of them, I'm in awe. And I'm made small by them. I am made little by them. They've lived the truth of faithfulness. I've written about it. They've lived it. I have preached about it. They have lived it. They've lived the truth of the faithfulness of God during tragedy. They've faithfully stayed the course of trusting the Lord. They've beautifully loved Christ even as the tears of distress and sorrow won't stop. And so to be in the presence of the Christian widow is to fellowship with one who has proven the faithfulness of God that he is faithful to the weeping believer. She's endured the tearing out of her heart by the loss of her beloved husband and yet has maintained her faith. She is truly worthy of honor. She is truly worthy of greatness. And I would pray that that's the attitude that permeates all of us in the church. There's a second honor. We'll call this one test of salvation. Test of salvation. Turn with me a few pages over to James chapter 1. Test of salvation in James 1. As you're finding that text, let me tell you a little bit about James. The epistle of James is very uncomfortable. It makes a direct and blunt point about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that genuine salvation results, it must result every time in a changed life with changed attitudes, changed words, changed behaviors. He says in James 2 that faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. The book of James is completely in line with the teaching of Jesus in John 15 that the good tree bears good fruit. And all throughout James, this is basically what the whole book is, he highlights various proofs of the genuine salvation of the professing believer. For example, James 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. James exhorts true Christians to consider it all joy when they face pain and anguish. Why? Because this is the testing of your faith. Is it real? Is it genuine? Only the Christian can say, thank you, Lord, for this horrible pain you've put upon me because of all the benefits that I will receive, that verse 4, perseverance will have its perfect work that I may be completed in the Lord. The proving of your faith is genuine. The strengthening of that genuine faith In verse 12 of chapter 1, he pronounces a a beatitude concerning the confirmation of the genuineness of faith. Verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's not that a person perseveres under trial and therefore receives salvation. Instead, the approval that James refers to here is the, the proof that salvation is genuine, that regeneration has occurred. These exhortations to demonstrate genuine faith are all throughout James. Let me just rifle through these in short form. Some of the appeals to demonstrate genuine faith, chapter 1, verses 19 through 24, make certain you listen to and obey the preaching of God's word because that's what saved people do. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, don't make distinctions between the rich and poor because that's what unbelievers do. They make those distinctions. Believers don't. 
Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, give practical, genuine help and compassion to fellow believers. Don't just give them merely hollow words of comfort. Go and be warmed and be filled. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, speak with words and speech that give a blessing and is like fresh water. Demonstrate your salvation status with your tongue. Chapter 3, 13 through 18, don't harbor bitterness and jealousy, which is earthly and James says is demonic. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, don't be the source of quarrels, don't lust, don't murder in the heart, don't be selfish in your prayers, don't be friends with the world. Chapter 4, verse 9, take your sin ultra seriously, don't laugh in the face of the gravity of sin. Chapter 4, verse 11, don't slander each other. Chapter 4, 13 through 17, don't boast of your future successes without relying on God's good graces. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, beware of trusting in riches. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, instead of groaning against each other, look to the coming of Christ. Now you might be saying, I think you went off the rails here, we were talking about widows. What in the world do the lessons of the book of James have to do with widows? Well, there's another exhortation to demonstrate the genuineness of salvation. The last verse of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 27 Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is a staggering statement in honor of widows. This is unbelievable here. James is basically saying that how a person treats the widows in the church is a test of the genuineness of their salvation in Christ. That's unreal. That while the world forgets the widow, the true Christian remembers her. While the world dismisses the widow, the genuine believer cherishes her. While the world looks down on the widow, the real follower of Christ cares for her and care in love and compassion and elevates her. This is a little bit uncomfortable. I think you would be uncomfortable. I think you'd be maybe a little overly flattered if God told you, anyone who loves you is a true Christian. That's uncomfortable. Now, it's more likely that he would say, Anyone capable of loving you must be a true Christian. We can understand that, right? But concerning the widow, God has said that the professing believer in Christ is shown to be genuine because of a natural, spirit-empowered love and care and concern for those in our midst. She is worthy of honor. She is a test of salvation. She's a third honor in Scripture. She is defended of God. She is defended of God. Turn back with me again to 1 Timothy 5. We'll see this in 1 Timothy 5. Ask any father with daughters about how he would respond to someone hurting his daughter. His answer will usually be some form of inflicting pain and anguish on anyone who would harm his daughter. And yes, Scripture condemns acts of revenge, but fathers have a God-given inclination, a God-given responsibility to protect their daughters. I've told this story before, but this episode deeply impacted my own life in numerous ways, and I think it aptly illustrates this principle. It was many years ago, I had the opportunity to counsel a little nine-year-old girl. And I counseled with this girl because she had been abused by a school teacher. The girl was temporarily in a foster home. That in and of itself is very traumatic to have happen to you. But the reason for her removal from her home was simply she had no caregiver. There was no one there who could take care of her. Why did she have no caregiver? Well, her father was in jail temporarily because of this whole drama. 
And as this unfolded, what I learned was that after the abusive episode, the little girl went home and told her father what happened. Her father wasted no time. He went straight to the school and severely assaulted the teacher who had touched his daughter. Then he sat down and waited for the police to come and take the consequences for what he'd just done. If I remember correctly, he received probation and a short county jail term from a very sympathetic judge, and he was soon reunited with his daughter. The teacher was arrested and convicted of child abuse. Yes, it's true that a society can't exist if anarchy and revenge rule the day, and we can't condone that. But one thing was certain as I spent time with that little girl. She was absolutely convinced of her father's love. There was no doubt in her mind that her daddy loved her because he went to her defense. In the same way, God unyieldingly defends widows all throughout Scripture. And since God is holy and since revenge is right for him, he even says in Scripture, revenge is mine. The one who abuses the widow ought to be terrified of God. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving reminders of the law of God to the second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt by God's miraculous power. And in in Deuteronomy 14, he makes some stipulations that If you want the blessing of God on your work, on your troubles, in the promised land that he was bringing to you, that all the labor that you do, if you want God's blessing, you must demonstrate compassion to a certain group of people. And included in this group, in Deuteronomy, in verse 14, it says, The sojourner, the orphan, and the widow who are within your gates shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands which you do. In other words, God is saying, if you want me to take care of you, you better take care of the widows. And considering that in the ancient Near East, being widowed could mean total destitution, total loss of property, loss of privilege. This warning to Israel is the compassionate act of God who refuses to bless a nation who won't care for the most vulnerable among them. Well, that same principle is true in the New Testament here in 1 Timothy 5 again. Paul outlines that, first of all, Christian family members are to care for the widows in their family. Chapter 5, verse 4, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. That's a verse that all mothers should have engraved and sent to their children while they're younger. That if, if, if that's not possible, though, then the church is to care for the widows in their midst. Skip all the way down to verse 16. If any believing woman has widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it, must, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, considering the scope of many topics that Paul covers in 1 Timothy The fact that he spends 14 verses on widows in chapter 5, that speaks to the emphasis, that speaks to the importance that God places on caring for these women of God. The majority of the chapter is spent on widows. Thinking back to Deuteronomy, the language of defense gets even stronger. After calling for the care of widows 10 times in Deuteronomy, Moses finishes an 11th mention by calling down the curse of God on any who neglect this duty. Deuteronomy 25, 19, 27, 19, rather, he says, Cursed is he who perverts the justice due a sojourner, orphan, and widow. And on top of that, Moses made all the people say amen to that warning. In other words, the people had to agree, yes, may God curse us if we do not care for widows. 
In Psalm 146.9, the psalmist declares that Yahweh helps up the widow but bends the way of the wicked. Proverbs 15.25 promises that God will tear down the house of the proud, but He will cause the boundary of the widow to stand. In Exodus 22.22, God commands, You shall not afflict any widow. And in a stunning act of grace, Jeremiah is told by God that that God is going to severely judge the Edomite people. He's going to slay the men of Edom for their wickedness. But then God issues an invitation in Jeremiah 49, 11. Leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. You know what that tells us? It tells us that in the heavenly kingdom someday, there will be a celebration of God's grace with the orphans and widows of the slain Edomite Edomite men. Those are just a few examples. You, you just flip through the Bible and it becomes very clear that God is a defender of the widow and that he retains a special love, a special favor for those who have suffered in this way. She is worthy of honor. She is a test of salvation. She is defended of God. Here's a fourth honor. She is a servant of God. She's a servant of God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and while you're finding Acts 9, listen to the familiar story of Anna from Luke 2. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him, that is Christ, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is, of course, the occasion of baby Jesus being brought to the temple. The world might say that the widowed woman has passed all usefulness or doesn't have much to offer anymore. But scripture tells a different story. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, is a tribute to the fact that God chooses those that the world may deem the least likely. She was given the privilege of being one of the few to see the baby Jesus at the temple, fully knowing that he was the Messiah who had come to the earth. And she continued to speak of Christ to all who were eagerly waiting for God to redeem Israel. Her focus was the Messiah. Her love was for Christ and her mission was for the gospel. Now, the example of Anna is unique. And it doesn't mean that every widow suddenly must become a street evangelist. That's not the lesson of Anna. There's a principle here, though, that her status as a widow had allowed her to freely focus exclusively upon the glory of God. She spent all of her spare time at the temple. She focused on the coming of Christ and the gospel implications for anyone who would listen to her. Here in Acts 9, though, we find one of the most poignant scenes in the brief history of the early church which helps illustrate this idea of servant of God. Acts 9, verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charity, which she continually did. Tabitha is a Christian woman in the city of Joppa. She's important enough in the church to mention by name and to receive some special attention. Why? Because Tabitha was no longer with them. Verse 37, and it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, pleading with him, do not delay in coming to us. 
She was so beloved that the disciples called for the nearby apostle Peter to come. And by the way, we've said this before, what does this say about Tabitha's character that they wanted her to be resurrected from the dead? They didn't say, well, let's just leave well enough alone. That says a lot about her character. Acts 9 verse 40, Peter has come. He sent all the people out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. What was it that made Tabitha so special? Verse 39, so Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, crying and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Why is she so special? I'm going to give you five reasons that Tabitha was special to the church. So special that the Lord would record her story in the pages of Scripture. The first reason she's special, Tabitha was almost certainly a widow herself. She was almost certainly a widow herself. The writer of Acts here, Luke, he gives numerous details about the circumstances of her death, including all those who were mourning with her. There's been time at her death for them to wash her body, to have it laid in an upper room. But what is noticeably absent in the list of people who are here? Any mention of a husband or children? Very noticeably absent. It was the church that washed her body and laid her in an upper room of one of the houses. Now, this isn't complete proof that she's a widow, but if she was married or if there were children nearby, it would be epic in the ancient Near East if husband and children weren't there at her death. That that would be unheard of. All the most important people in her life are with her at her death. Tabitha was almost certainly a widow herself. Here's a second reason she's special. The tribute to Tabitha is significant. The tribute to Tabitha is, is significant. The second half of verse 36, this woman was full of good works and charity, which she continually did. This was her reputation, very likely as a widow, that she was a constant servant to the church. Our version here, the Legacy Standard, says she was full of good works and charity, which she continually did. The English Standard Version says full of good works and acts of charity. This is specifically meaning she was doing things for people that showed mercy in a time of need, and that she had a giving spirit. In fact, this Word, acts of charity, can even mean to give to the poor. It's the third reason she's special. Tabitha served widows in the church. Tabitha served widows in the church. When Peter arrived, this is very clear, it says that all the widows of the church were there. All of them were there. And they were crying and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. She cared for the material needs of the widows among the church, and they were so touched by this that her death reduced them to weeping. But she didn't just minister to the widows. There's a fourth reason she's special. She cared for many others as well. She cared for many others as well. Verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. She'd served many others beyond the widows as well, apparently, and they were all gathered there. Have you ever wondered why both of her known names, Dorcas and Tabitha, are mentioned twice each? Why Luke makes certain that the reader knows that Dorcas is the translation of Tabitha? 
Tabitha was her Aramaic name, known to the Jewish believers. Dorcas was her Greek name, known to the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews and to Gentile believers. Both names mean gazelle. We're not told what the significance of that is, so we won't speculate. But Luke goes to a lot of detailed trouble to repeatedly say that she was well-known both by her Aramaic and Greek names. Why is that important? Well, let me explain that, and then we'll get to the fifth reason she was so special in the church. Turn a few pages back to Acts chapter 6. The church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Acts 6, is in its fledgling days, and it has instant needs. 3,000 came to faith in chapter 2. The end of chapter 2 says that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 men, not including their families, were saved. What does this mean? This means that there were immediate needs for leadership, immediate needs for ministry and care for widows in the church. What we're talking about here is at minimum a church of 10,000 in a matter of days. How do, you, how do you deal with that? I mean, we as elders, we panic when we have one new family in the church. Oh no, what are we going to do? 10,000 instantly. And how many books are there on how to run the church of Jesus Christ? Zero. You had new believing widows who instantly were part of the family of God in the church, potentially hundreds of them. And the apostles took this very seriously. They set out immediately to care for the widows as, by providing food for them. Well, there was a small problem here. Living in the same city, and some here because of the gospel, living in the same city were Hellenists, Jews who culturally had taken on Greek culture probably generations back, and Hebrews, Jews who had retained an emphasis on speaking Hebrew and Aramaic and keeping the old ways and and resisting Hellenism. Generally, these groups didn't like each other. They were at odds with each other. And in the church, the Hebrew widows weren't being fed. And, or, sorry, they were being fed, and the Hellenist widows were not. There was a divide in the church. There was discrimination in the church. Acts 6, verse 1, Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And so they picked seven men of good reputation, wise and full of the Holy Spirit. They were chosen to take charge of serving, at least kind of a rough basis for our office of deacon so that the apostles could focus on the ministry of the word. Now, the reason I give you this little historical background, the significance of Acts 6 is that the church of Jesus Christ in the church where the banner of the cross says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither uh, slave nor free, male nor female, that we're one in Christ, well, there was a practical problem here. These old factions still existed and they carried over into the church and it was very, very obvious. The Hebrew widows were being fed, the Hellenists were not. Now, go back to Acts 9. Let's revisit this woman and see the fifth reason she was so special. The fifth reason she was so special, she loved without favoritism. She loved without favoritism. 
Why does Luke open this account with this detail? Now in Joppa, in verse 36, now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated is called Dorcas. In this age in which relations between traditional Jewish Christians and Hellenized Christians, these relations were strained, Tabitha, Dorcas, was beloved by all and known by all, by both names. She was loved and known by, for her service, for her good deeds, that with her deeds, with her love, she bridged the tension often present in the early church. And could I say this? Then when verse 39 says, all the widows, we could add all the Hellenist widows and all the Jewish widows, the Hebrew widows, and they had come together all under the banner of one thing they did have in common other than Christ. They had a love for Tabitha, a love for Dorcas in common. What an example. What a unifying woman she was. What a servant she was. It grows very tiresome to me to hear so many today continue to say that denying women spiritual leadership role in, roles in the church is somehow the forbid occasions to minister to God's people. Tabitha is proof against that. She's proof that this could not be more untrue. She was not a preacher. She wasn't a leader. She wasn't a great missionary. But the church at Joppa couldn't get along without her. And she was a living example of the witness Jesus said faithful Christians were to display. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Love for one another. And in fact, in God's sovereign plan, He allowed Tabitha to die and be raised from the dead because this publicized her life of service to Christ. And look what happened in verse 42 of Acts 9. And it became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Why? Because she loved the whole church. Didn't matter who you were. She loved without favoritism. The Christian widow is a dear and important servant of Christ. She is worthy of honor. She is a test of salvation. She is defended of God. She is a servant of God. And let me give you a fifth honor. And so just take a moment. She is a queen of the kingdom. She's a queen of the kingdom. And I want to have you follow my logic here. If we put together the facts presented so far that the widows of the church are, are worthy of honor, they're used as a test for salvation, they're defended of God, they're the servants of Christ, it follows logically that widows could be very much characterized as royalty in the kingdom of God. The, the Apostle Paul famously declared that, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. It's in Romans 8.18. Multiple times, Paul uses the royal metaphor of the crown to speak of the Christian's coming heavenly reward. 1 Corinthians 9, Philippians 4, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 4. Jesus promises the faithful believer the crown of life in Revelation 2, verse 10. And in the eternal state on new earth and in new Jerusalem, Revelation 22, 5 says all the saints will reign forever and ever. That is ample evidence that if widows are accorded great honor by God while on this earth, and if all faithful believers are promised royal positions and authority in the coming kingdom of Christ on this earth, then it follows that we may with delight call the widows in our midst the queens of the kingdom. And that's how they ought to be treated and, and thought of. The queens of the kingdom among us and all of us 
may cling together with the certainty, the hope given in the great doxology of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's where we're all headed. That's where we're all going. My hope is that these thoughts about what Scripture says about the widow really just bleed over into every area of our, our lives as, as Christians, as a local church. I have the privilege of being friends with numbers of, of pastors and we get to talk together sometimes and we might ask, you know, what, what's, what's the biggest challenge in your church? What's, a, what's an issue? You know what comes up every time? Is love. Loving one another, cherishing each other, not being in conflict with each other, caring for each other. We are the family of God on this earth, and Grace Bible Church is the family of God on White Lane, given to one another. And I believe that if we have a proper estimation of widows, we'll have a proper estimation of one another. And the reason I read this, this doxology from Jude, that we are, as we often say here, walking one another home. And we walk each other home to this great glory arm in arm, helping one another, and if one stumbles, all the rest of us hold her up, right? If another stumbles, we hold him up. That's what we do. And I hope that when Grace Bible Church stands before God, I don't know how that's going to work if you've been in eight different churches in your life. I don't know. That's not my worry. But I hope that when Grace Bible Church stands before God, that the Lord Jesus says, you know, the outside of your building, wasn't that great looking? But you were characterized by love and you cared for the least among you and you loved one another. And because of that, we did his will. That's my hope, amen? Our Father, thank you for those among us who have suffered in such ways that we can honor them and we can be in awe of what you have done through them. Not just widows, but widowers, others who have lost children, others who have endured great tragedy at various levels and various times of life. You have given them spiritual battle scars with which they may demonstrate your faithfulness. And I pray that these things that we have meditated on this evening, Lord, would cause us to love one another, to take that extra moment, to take that time to cherish the body of Christ, to not be in such a hurry that we forget those among us who may be hurting, those among us who may need an extra hug, an extra prayer, an extra visit. Lord, I pray that that's what characterizes our church, a church filled with love. As the Apostle John was so eager to say at the end of his life, my little children love one another. I pray that that is our legacy. I pray that that is our norm here in our church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.